People and purpose are key drivers of performance, but are most often overlooked. The reshaping of our society is demanding a more engaged workforce to achieve on all fronts, yet most organizations often don't know how. They are forced to rethink what they stand for, the stories they tell, and how they are articulating the living on their purpose. I'm your host, Michelle Roberts, and welcome to Purpose First. Learn how top business leaders think, act, and achieve more by turning businesses into movements by putting people and purpose first. I am super excited and pleased to welcome Ari Weisweg as my guest today. How are you, Ari? I'm doing pretty good, as as good as one can be doing in the middle of all this pandemic and in the middle of February in Michigan, when yes. it's kind of cold and not too <laughs> conducive to sitting outside, to say the least. But I hear you. All <laughs> things considered, I feel very fortunate. I hear you. Ari, along with his business partner, Paul Saginaw, founded Zingerman's Deli in 1982. Since grown to 12 different businesses... Zingerman's community of businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and now has hundreds of employees and they do millions of dollars a year. But it doesn't end there. They not only make a healthy profit, but focus on their people and purpose first, making Zingerman's a movement. Um, I have to say that I have been to Ann Arbor many times. My husband, um, his family, he grew up there and his family is still there. Um, And so one of the first memories I have uh, of going to Ann Arbor is going to Zingerman's <laughs> to All right. So, so very cool. So thank you again, Ari, for being here. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Um, I should also know that Ari is an amazingly talented writer. Um, he is author of works including Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service, Zingerman's Guide to Eat Good Eating, uh, Guide to Good Leading, and most recently published, Working Through Hard Times, Life and Leadership Learnings from 2020. As 2020 has all been a challenging year, was a challenging year for, for almost everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, so again, so great to have you here. Um, I would, I, I uh, again, I, since I'm in Rochester, I'm in upstate New York, I sure. can definitely understand the whole snow. <laughs> <laughs> and not not being able to get out. I love being outside in nature as similar as you, I think, as well. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I still run outside every day, so I'll get out there. But it's uh, it's more enjoyable for me when it's like 80 <laughs> than when it's 18. Yep. So why are we living in this tundra? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, I like Ann Arbor. There's something that's, you know good about everywhere not so good about everywhere and i like all the rest of it i just don't love the weather but it is what it is yeah and and ann arbor is it's a magical place i mean being that i've been there multiple times i it's just such a, a community aspect everyone you can just feel that everyone truly cares um about one another and uh it, it's it's definitely different than other places that i've ever been to well, yeah, I, I, I guess I feel the same, or I don't guess, I do feel the same way. It's, that's why, that's a big part of why I'm here. And that's one, I, I feel very fortunate to be in such a positive community, especially during a challenging time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like it, we all know that this pandemic has been has been hard, um, especially in the food business. Um, much like where you you are in, I would kind yeah. of I would love to hear from you uh, and tell all the listeners around. You know, what is this community of businesses? Um, yeah, elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. So uh, this is work that, so Paul and I, as you said, opened the deli in 1982, and then in 1993, over the course of about a year, is the first time that we wrote out a vision uh, in the way that we now do it regularly, and you probably saw the e-news that came out uh, last week, had a whole piece about it, but um, that vision was called Zingerman's 2009, and it described our future uh, that we were committing to pursue that was going to be 15 years down the road, which seemed like forever at the time. And uh, that vision described a community of businesses uh, where each business would have its own identity and each would have a managing partner in it that had a passion for what that business did. Uh, but each would have its own unique specialty and uh, and that we would operate as one organization with these semi-autonomous parts. So it, it was a long year of trying to figure out what that future was going to look like, but I have a very uh, strong commitment or passion for doing business. Like I said, in the place that where that one lives, I think it's a different uh, feel when you're not there. It's a little too colonial for me. I'm not judging others, but it's not my style. And then also I am, I've always been drawn and continue to be drawn to the businesses where there's really just one really special one and i don't i don't mean it's evil to open five of the same thing but it sort of loses a little bit of the magic the passion the energy uh, etc that are such to me such an interesting part of what makes anything great music great art uh great theater and great food yeah and what i find just so brilliant is that you know rather than you know opening up a franchise and making bigger, going bigger, you know, and going through that model, you chose to develop this new independent business, business mm-hmm. and rooted in, you know, that local community feel, but they, but yet they all work together. So, yeah, you know, take us, take us back there to that moment when you kind of decided like, this is, this is a, an idea that we can actually work. Because like a lot of my my listeners might be saying, well, that that's great, but like, how does one come up with that? <laughs> or like, why would we do that versus like going bigger and you know? Yeah, well, you, I think it's important for people to do what they want to do. I mean, if if the franchise model appeals to people, I mean, more power to them. Go for it. I, I'm not. I don't think it's a terrible thing. It's just not interesting to me. Uh, the visioning process that we use is very much an inside out process and it's I, I didn't go to business school but it's very different than the business school model which i think is pretty outside in uh where you're trying to figure out the right thing you should do or what the hole in the market is and i don't i don't think that's bad but this is much more about what do we want to create and how do we want to go to work at a particular point in the future and so when we write a vision it's really a, a much more detailed description so we just finished our 20 so the, the one i described was written in 93 and 94 for 2009 and in 06 and 07 we wrote the next one which was for 2020 and then uh 
we started in, I think, 2018 to write the 2032 vision, which will put us at 50 years in business. And uh, we were about to formally roll it out after sharing around a million drafts inside the organization uh, a year ago, late March. And of course, that didn't happen. So we just finally had the town hall meeting to formally uh, kick it off. It wasn't a big shock since everybody pretty much had seen drafts of it throughout, but to formally say, here's where we're going. So that one's about 10 pages long. So it's a, again, it's a, it's emotionally engaging. It's descriptive. It's, it really talks about the future you want to create. And if that future includes franchises or going public I mean, more power to people, but those aren't things that really interest me or get my passion going. Yeah, you have some friends. <laughs> I have some dogs barking at the FedEx driver. <laughs> oh, don't you love that? Like, it's either the mailman or the Amazon Prime truck. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know it's like in my home, too. <laughs> it was it was so quiet this morning that I decided I would risk doing this from my house. But... <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so it sounds like, you know, what I think is very, um, it sounds like you have an intrinsic process of looking you know, as a company inward first and then basing that, the idea, that purpose, and then making that vision come to life through that. Um, where, where did that originate through? Like, how did you come up with your visioning process? Well, we, we didn't come up with it really. We learned it as we did so many other things that we do. Uh, this we learned through an amazing guy named Stash Kazmierski. Don't, I can try to spell it for you later if you want, but he, uh, he used it on me and Paul in 1993. Uh, at that time, he was a consultant with a firm called Dana Miller Tyson, which was known all over the country for its uh, progressive organizational change methodologies. And uh, I don't have an office, but I could understand that they got tired of sitting in office. So they would walk down the block and come have coffee and hang out and have their meetings at the deli all the time. And so that's how we got to know him. And he, uh, I now know, had learned the process originally from a guy named Ron Lippett, who had been uh, at the University of Michigan Institute of Social Research in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, and early 80s. And he had developed this process. Uh, it was called, he called it preferred futuring. We sort of have adapted it a bit, and then we call it visioning. But uh, basically, his work came out of uh, trying to help community groups to come to uh, a collaborative agreement on where they were going. And they would typically start with the the very commonly still used uh, problem solving meetings that people get into where, you know, here's this challenge we have, where do we get the money or whatever. And inevitably, even though things might start quickly uh, with creative ideas, pretty soon they would sort of degenerate and said, well, that's not going to work. We tried that. You'll never get the budget. You'll never get that approved by this department or that department or whatever. And, uh, Ron Lippitt's, I don't know, kind of genius or insight was to say, forget the problem and forget what's wrong right now. Just plant your minds collectively in the future and let's describe what it's going to be like, assuming that we do get the money and we do get approval, et cetera, et cetera. And what they found is that people became more energized and collaboration went up, the creativity went up. 
everything got better. And, uh, and so that's really the process that Stosh learned from him. Stosh taught it to us. And then at, at that time in 93, I mean, he used it on us. Like I said, I couldn't have explained it to you, but now we teach it to everybody. We have written, as you said, a ton about it. Um, and we use it not just for the organization, but for everything. So it's, it's really an approach to life. Uh, and so people who learn it, whether it's people who work here or through Zinc Train, which is their training business or the business books, uh, start to use it frequently for their home lives, for their marriages, for their kids, for vacations, uh, really whatever it might be. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's where it starts. You have to have a vision before. How can you get anywhere? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I think <clears throat> that's that's really a big piece of it is that um, it's an I, <clears throat> excuse me, in part one of the guide to good leading, which is building a better business. Uh, uh, I wrote or building a great business. Sorry, I wrote uh, an essay called 12 Natural Laws of Business, which is my belief that all healthy organizations and really all thriving individuals are living in harmony with those natural laws, even though they may not use the terminology. Uh, that's what they're doing. And the first one on the list is about vision, because really anybody who creates anything has to have had some vision of what they're going after. <clears throat> and it's my belief, really, that it's a natural human process that we all know how to do when we're six, uh, but then society pressures us to conform and we sort of forget how to do it. And this is a few people keep doing it, but this is really a way to teach it to everybody. That's awesome. And I, I love that your books don't, they're not specifically for businesses, they're for everyone. So it really lends to this human humanity, like, you know, here's a way to better your life, better your business. Um, it's just, it's a it really ties into the the brand itself and what you know you've helped build yeah i mean i think that's one of the things that i would not have understood early on but uh now i have come to realize as i work more and more on models of living and, and working in business in harmony with nature and human nature and then attempting we've got a long way to go but to doing it better with the planet too uh is that all of these approaches that we use it's not just the visioning but our work around energy management and collaboration and all the anarchist stuff i write about i mean it's very much i would suggest aligned with human nature uh and i think a lot of the typical industrial model business stuff is actually antithetical to nature and that that creates a lot of tension and like i said that these are processes you can use at home so that what we're teaching people and trying to practice imperfectly of course at work every day is the same practices that we want to do out of work yep yep and you know back in 2009 when you were uh, in this vision planning session leading up to this moment uh where where were you at in your life like what was going on and i know it was a collaboration of thinking around this idea of you know uh, local community businesses um but what kind of what show me give me an idea of what was going on with well you. i mean 1993 and 94 when we wrote it so we'd been in business for about 12 years <clears throat> and uh it, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this at the time. Paul had, I, I think, kind of an intuitive sense of it, but it's a, it was a stage that is not uncommon in business and life in the sense you could equate it to 
uh, a midlife right. in, in your personal life or finishing college or whatever, like you attained this thing that everybody thought you couldn't do. And then you realize once you get there, it's actually not done. You're only at the beginning and you got a long way of your life to go and you're, you're not really sure where you are. So my, my belief is that most people who, who start an organization, because it's true for nonprofits as well as for-profits, and it does well. I mean, they had a vision of what they wanted to create. It's just then they reach this stage where it's kind of done, but they don't really know what's next. And then there's a million things you can do. And one of the good problems that happens after you've had some success is people start throwing options and opportunities at you left and right. And you could do this. And I got a great lease for you here. And, you know, and, and they're all legit. It's just it, it, we use the metaphor of building a cathedral for uh, visioning. Uh, that the the, the the vision is the cathedral that you're all collectively working to create. And it's a little bit like the cathedral got built, but the workmen keep coming. And so they just keep adding more and more to the site because, I don't know, having a pool out back sounds good. Or they read an article that adding a second story over here increases property value. I mean, they're, they're all legitimate things, but you end up losing the elegance and coherence of the original design, which is a lot of what made it so special. Yeah, agreed. So kind of going back to the basics and what what values were present in you in that time that kind of helped to develop this strategy? Because it's a different way of thinking about something. So I'm just curious, sort of what was present? Well, I mean, I it's a long time ago. Now, so <laughs> I don't know exactly what was present. But I, I mean, I think the values essentially stay the same. It's just the question is, what are you going to do with them? And, you know, you could I mean, on a personal level, you could have 10 kids or you could have no kids. You could live in Ann Arbor, you could live in Alaska, or you could live in West Africa. I mean, they're all legit. It's just, it's just getting, and there's advantages and disadvantages to all of them. So this is really just about getting clear what's in your heart about the kind of life you want to lead in this case, collectively, Mm -hmm. and then creating that. So like, how do the employees who work in your business feel? How do you feel about going to work? You know, what gets you excited because you can do anything. I mean, a real, you know, I have a lot of advantages in life. Not like I came from a wealthy family, but I mean, just growing up in a middle-class family with Mm -hmm. access to college and growing up in a learning setting and all those kind of things. So, you know, I don't mean anybody can just go from, from extreme poverty to wealth in a week. That's not going to happen. There's a lot of systemic and cultural barriers that they got to overcome. But my point is just, if we start out in business, we can make it big. We can keep it small. I mean, there's a lot to be said for a wonderful small 25 seat restaurant. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to be said for having a hundred of them, if that's what you want to do. I mean, it's, they're just totally different jobs. Yep. Yeah. And what was it um, that made you decide to go that route? Like, I know you said you kind of looked at like your, your values and kind of looked at what you were thinking, but around that time, what was it about that type of model that was appealing for you and still is for the, for the company? Well, I think in a lot of ways, I was happy to just stay with what we had and keep making it better. I mean, we've always been about trying to make everything better all the time. And I, like I said, we had expanded, I didn't say, but we had expanded the building twice. And, you know, I guess I always still to this day feel like when you're drawn to something really unique and special, it's a 
It's an amazing experience that whether that's an architectural monument or a piece of art or music or whatever, it's the things that really resonate with you in a special way and not just what's convenient. Uh, like if you get in the elevator, there might be music playing and you might like it, but I doubt that it's like the thing that really hits you in an emotionally meaningful way. And that's the kind of business that we wanted to have. Paul, on the other hand, wanted to grow. And then I always liked this uniqueness. So it was, a, it was really trying to come up with a creative way to combine the idea of how we could grow with how we could create, retain that creative uniqueness. And that's what we came up with. That's awesome. And the community aspect had a huge part in that as well, correct? Yeah. Again, I mean, I feel super strongly, uh, more so even now than then, but just about doing business in the place that you are. Uh, I've been working a lot on the idea of organization as ecosystem. And so just the whole idea of you're you're in a place. I mean, uh, my girlfriend has amazing little uh, sustainable farm. Uh, in a, she has a hoop house and a little bit of land around it. And she grows everything from seed, air, all heirlooms, uh, hand waters, everything. I mean, it's fantastic. And we buy some of her produce and she sells to other restaurants. But like nobody calls her and goes like, I want to, Tammy, I want to open 200 of these around the country. This is awesome. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense because the soil where she's growing is not, and the climate is completely different than if you open in another place. And so the idea that businesses are just plopped down with no... Mm -hmm. uh, real regard other than slightly you know arranging things for the location maybe a little bit but with all due respect i mean pick whatever your chain of whatever is i mean best buy in alaska is not really i don't think much different than best buy in alabama and you know maybe that's convenient for people but it's not the kind of work i want to do and when i think of musicians i'm drawn to or art that i'm drawn to it's really the people who are doing stuff that's really true to who they are yeah absolutely very love it well said well said uh as i am i'm an artist as well so i can i can truly understand that and there's a sense of authenticity and i think what you're talking about in a lot of ways too is this ecosystem of businesses and have you you know have you talked a little bit more about that in in some of your books or about how to build something like that and to take in all of the elements you know like you're talking about it's not just about planning something down anywhere it's about looking yeah. at how everything's integrated interconnected yeah well i wrote some about it in the introduction to part four which is the power of beliefs in business because i started to think uh, the whole book is or the core of the book is about uh beliefs so not necessarily really religion sports and politics which are three areas of belief people like to talk about a lot yeah <laughs> uh, but more beliefs about human beings about ourselves about what leadership means about how much work is too much work working sunday or not working sunday work you know all, all we have beliefs about everything and uh, what we believe is driving our behaviors and driving our relationships and driving our decisions. And most of us don't even know it. And it turns out, of course, beliefs are not genetic. They're all learned. Mm -hmm. And essentially, we learn from our families, but also our friends from the media, from people we admire. And what most of us, me included, until I started doing this work, don't realize is that we can actually choose the beliefs that we want and we're not locked into the ones that other people gave us if they're not productive. And uh, 
anyway, I started to look with that in mind at the idea of beliefs as metaphorically as roots, the root system of our lives, because you can't really see them. But everything that comes up above the surface, we know is 100 percent correlated to those beliefs. And uh, and then the metaphor, just in a, in a way that's congruent with the metaphor, kept growing. <laughs> and uh, I started to look at organizational culture as the soil, because if you plant uh, the same plant in two different spots, if the soil's unhealthy one and healthy in the other, you're going to get radically different results. Uh, I started to look at hope as the sun, mm-hmm. because plants and people all move towards it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, spirit of generosity as moisture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's where I wrote about it initially. And then I've continued to expand on it. And I was working on an essay to make into a pamphlet, but now it's becoming bigger still. And it's turning into a part five of the series. <laughs> that's great. Which so- means what the good news is, I, it, I, it's, it's, I'm very into the idea of it and I keep teaching it more and more and developing it. The bad news is it's a lot of work to do a book, so it's not going to come out next week. But uh, the e-news that I do, I've been trying to put stuff in there. And yesterday I wrote a piece uh, that came out about humility because I did a pamphlet in the fall about humility and uh, in the ecosystem metaphor, looking at it as humus or topsoil because it's relatively thin layer, but it if you lose it, uh, not a lot good grows. And I think that's true socially, organizationally, and then clearly it's true in farming. What do you think is um, one of the biggest challenges of creating you know, something like you've done with the um, independent businesses and community? And the- Well, I, I think everything's hard. I mean, I, I think there's nothing great in life that's not hard. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, if you're in your relationship for 30 years, it's going to be, have hard times. I mean, if you're in business for 30 years, you're going to have hard times. There could even be a pandemic. Uh, you know, I mean, so there, there's always difficulties. Uh, natural law number nine is that success means you get better problems. And so mm-hmm. the, the point of the vision in essence is to choose the problems you want, right? So if, if, you know, I don't want the problem of building it up and selling it. And ha- I, I mean, I'm not down on money, but having a lot of money, but not having a job and work that I really love is less interesting to me. So, and, and in the same way that, you know, as a writer or a musician that you would leave your work for people, hopefully to appreciate long after you've left the planet, I would like to be able to do the same thing with the business. Yep, Absolutely. Um, so there's something else that you touched on a little bit earlier around the, you know, the sustainability issues and environmental initiatives that you, mm-hmm. that you are, you know, you've broken them down into five different categories. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about those and how you decided on what was that was something that valued the organization. Well, I, I mean, I think clearly it's a it's a big issue. Uh, it is not my area of expertise. I clearly we need to do better. We. We've got a lot of people, uh, Roger Bowser, one of the partners at the Delhi, uh, has done a ton of work to lead our work group internally on it. Uh, one of the one of the challenges of uh, of the of the pandemic has been as restaurant in the restaurant end of what we do. I mean, there's so much more carry out, which is a good thing because it's helping us at least do some business during this challenging time. But then, of course, it increases the disposable use. Uh, so th- these are challenges that we have. I mean, and, you know, we have a mail order business that is great, 
and actually is the one, like I said, it's booming in the pandemic, but that it's hard to do that without boxes and cost of shipping and all those kind of things. So I think we're all in a, in a position where we're trying to reevaluate how we live and what we do. Like I don't have an office and our businesses are all over town. So I drive not long distance, but I'm I'm in my car, you know, going from one to the next, not all day, but I don't know how to get around in a small town without a car <laughs> right. uh, where I got, a, you know, I'm hauling all my stuff with me because I don't have an office. So these are these are real life challenges that I think are clearly things we want to work on. I was excited to see General Motors announce a couple weeks ago or last month that they were going to pursue electric vehicles uh, passionately. And I think technology clearly can be used in ways that can help us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, we can't escape this, right? These issues, like they're eventually going to catch up with us. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'm a city kid from Chicago, so this yeah. is not how I grew up. I didn't know any of this stuff. Although I will say in hindsight, my mother used to recycle a long time ago, but, but, uh, I, part of the, the, the work around the anarchist stuff is realizing like a lot of the challenges that have occurred in, in nature. And I wrote a little bit about this and I don't claim to be the world's expert, but a little bit about it yesterday in the, in the piece is just the, the lack of humility that we have as human beings uh, is what translates into looking at the planet as this tool or resource for us to use to our benefit, as opposed to what I think is more accurate, which is that we're part of the ecosystem. We may have a higher level of awareness or creative ability to think creatively about solutions and positive outcomes. But the reality is we are part of the ecosystem. So we're not the paternalistic parent or whatever that's supposed to take care of it. We're, we're a part of it. And so every action that we take impacts the ecosystem and then we're impacted by the ecosystem. Yep. Mutually. Um, it's, it's mutual. So tell us a little bit more about the open book management. I know that, um, yeah. Some some companies would cringe at that fact of you know sharing finances huh. with everyone in the company. <laughs> they might think you're crazy, but um, but tell us about how you decided to do that and sort of what's been the benefit to that. Well, that's an open book is a good example of beliefs. Uh, so the belief that you shouldn't show your employees the numbers is just a belief. Like, right. Where and did if it you. Come from? If, <laughs> Well, if you flip the belief around, then it, it, the the old model looks crazy because the idea of having employees in business that don't know how the business is doing, to me, seems kooky. <laughs> it's it's a little bit to... like you're the coach of the basketball team, and <laughs> and and the players don't know the score; only you right. do. Right. And then you're crazy. yelling at them to play harder all the time. And they think they're winning by 30 and you know they're losing by 20. And so I, I would say most business people, including us, we're struggling. I mean, all, you know, even when it's going well, you're still not killing it, even though the public's perception of it in the same way that, I don't know, whatever uh, body weight issues or whatever things are projected in the media as being these ideal states. But the reality is hardly anyone's in them. <laughs> 
right. and right. and yet we've we're, we're we're allowing ourselves to get programmed to think that that's the norm and there's, that there's something wrong with us if we're not there and i i don't mean we don't want to achieve at a high level it's just most business owners are struggling at some level at some point and most employees have no clue that they're struggling and so the employee becomes focused mostly on what they're not getting and and how much they perceive in their imagination that the business owner is is, is squirreling away and the truth is everybody's struggling and I would love to double the pay of everybody we employ tomorrow. It's just trying to figure out how to keep paying the bills. And when you're open book, they're part of that conversation. And of course they'd love to double their own pay, but they understand if we double everybody's pay, they can look at the cash flow projection and it's not rocket science. Every eighth grader could figure out you're going to run out of money. Yeah. So how, at what what point did you adapt to this? And yeah, so we we went open book in the mid '90s. Uh, the 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 key textbook on open book is Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham, and we Paul and I read that, and then we started doing it. And it probably took us five six years to get pretty decent at it. And it's not like we're perfect, but we actually teach it through Zinc Train, uh, our application of how to make it work. That's great. That's awesome. So what? So I'm sure it creates a sense of transparency, which, you know, uh, would it, can only imagine the conversations and how they're elevated around the business and the sort of the passion that people have knowing where they stand and where mm -hmm. where everyone else stands and sort of the, it's, can you tell us a story maybe around that? Well, I think it's, it's, I mean, the pandemic's a good example. I mean, we just this morning finished our uh, monthly Zingerman's wide huddle. I mean, so some of the, like I said, mail order is doing really well. The bakehouse is uh, doing solidly, awesomely well too. Not not booming like mail order, but basically having a, a good, solid, normal year. And everybody else is challenged. I mean, but the reality is then everybody knows who's challenged and we understand the issues that are at play. And I, I think anybody pick your pick your metaphor but i mean nobody plays basketball wants to be down 20 at the half but you can come back from it and if you don't even know you're down 20 it's going to radically alter the way you play and I, I think when people are challenged in a good way they can come together and achieve at great levels with creative solutions and, and creative collaborations and that's really the point of it absolutely Absolutely. That's, that's amazing. And I, I think so many more companies will start to adapt this, hopefully. Um, I think that the proof is there. Uh, it's just, you know, like you said, it takes a while. Um, what were, yep. what were most some, things do? <laughs> yeah. What were those challenges in the beginning? I'm curious. Well, it's, I think that open book, uh, I guess I would say of all the stuff we teach in some ways, it's one of the harder ones to Matt to, to integrate because like if you learn our customer service training, you mentioned the service book mm -hmm. any if you have a hundred employees, one can listen and no one else can do anything. And that one can already start to make a difference. Uh, but with open book, the, the, the owners, the leaders have to change their perspectives, obviously, because they need to start teaching everybody else how finance works sharing the numbers, explaining the numbers, involving people in the decision-making, but the frontline people have to change just as much because the reality is I'm stereotyping and I don't even know that somebody pointed out the word frontline is probably not even the best, but your team members, I mean, most of the country, most of the world that's working in jobs on the front of things 
it's still used to blaming the owners, blaming the boss and waiting for the heroic boss to swoop in and fix things. And this is where the boss is saying the truth. I don't know what to do either. Right. <laughs> we got to figure it out together. And so it's it's really getting out of the parent-child relationship, which is an awesome relationship if you're the parent and you're the child. But in this case, we're, we're, we're equally intelligent human beings. And uh, you know, whatever angle you want to take, whether it's from my anarchist studies, I mean, there, there's no correlation between intelligence, creative ability, or anything else between hierarchical roles. So as, as the leader of the organization, I have a high level of responsibility, but it doesn't mean that the greatest idea of the week isn't going to come from the newest employee that we just hired to work the cheese counter at the deli. Mm -hmm. Right. And that type of environment allows for that to come to the surface for it to be heard yeah, yeah yeah you're encouraging it and it's still not perfect but it's a start right well i would i would love to hear a little bit about the pamphlet working through hard times life and leadership learnings of 20 yeah sure i know you've, you've touched on the pandemic and sort of how it's influenced uh, the organization and your leadership so we'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about what inspired yeah i mean it, it's just uh well i write this e-news every week uh which uh zingerman's i'm sure you could put the link in the show notes, but zingermanscommunity.com is where people can sign up for it. And it also has the archive uh, so people can look back at older ones, but it comes out every Wednesday. And uh, I don't know, I was thinking about the year uh, as we approach the end of it. And I mentioned that humility pamphlet, which was probably 18 months in the works. And this pamphlet was really a much quicker sort of realization that there was merit to taking what was in my mind and my heart and understanding that probably everybody has their own version of that going on and putting it in print. And uh, so it's, it's written, the, the preface is written at the end of December. So it's like, okay, we're halfway through this pandemic. Uh, we got a long way to go. It's been a really difficult year. Uh, the introduction goes back to the beginning of it. So the first piece that I wrote all the way back in April, uh, which was called Things Fall Apart, um, and what we were experiencing at that time. And then the other pieces that are in there are all things I wrote about during the course of the year in terms of in terms of trying to get through the pandemic and the pressures that go with it. So mm -hmm. talking about dignity, talking about building hope in your organization, uh, the visioning process that you asked about earlier, um, about picking up the phone and calling friends to stay grounded and, and connected. Uh, about the challenges of working through what we learned to call here the zone of doubt and blame, which is where the, the initial energy is long since dissipated, but you're a long way from the finish line. Uh, so, so those are tools that were that I'd also I wrote about journaling, which is a thing I do every morning. Uh, so it's stuff that helped me get through the 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 year of 2020 but i realized they're really timeless tools i mean it's stuff that no matter what hard time and we're going to have more hard times uh, whether it's personal interpersonal organizational social whatever these are tools that i think get you through all of it and and then as a history major i don't know it's just there's just something to me meaningful about sort of having something of the moment and I, I realized that it wasn't consciously why I decided to do it, but I realized as I was working on it, it's in a way it's almost for myself as much as anybody else, because it's about getting my own emotion out there in a way that ultimately connects with others. And I think we all, 
like to know we're not alone. Yes, especially during the pandemic times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So I will definitely link that in um, the notes below. And uh, I look forward to reading it myself. I think that, yeah. uh, you know, I, I just think it's great, like you said, to have something to have a marker in time to look back yeah. and, um, and to emotionally connect people right now because they need that more than ever um, as we continue to move through all of this. Yeah. And I, again, with all the books, uh, we, we do all the design here. We print them here in town. We're, we're sort of off the grid, but it's, it's a little bit of the, uh, book version of, uh, farm to table. So just trying to, again, ground in the community and share a little bit of that in a helpful and productive way with others. So, and people can see them all on zingermanspress.com or zingtrain.com, both Awesome. So yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to mention earlier, but the the 12 businesses, could you could you name them off so people understand sort of how? Yeah, so the deli's still uh, the core of all of it. Uh, the mail order we mentioned is zingermans.com. We ship food and stuff all over the country. Uh, Zing Train, we just mentioned, is our training business. Zingerman's uh, Roadhouse is a sit-down restaurant that's all regional American food. Miss Kim is a little Korean restaurant that we have, Cornman Farms. We do like weddings and events, but that's a particularly challenging business, even worse than restaurants right now. Uh, we have a little food tour business, which is even worse than all of it because there's zero travel going on. So uh, we're not doing any business there. Uh, Zingerman's Creamery, we make fresh cheese. So fresh handmade cream cheese, goat cheese, et cetera. Uh, Zingerman's Coffee, we roast coffee, obviously, and have a cafe. And Zingerman's Candy, we make uh, little handmade candy bars. And then the bakehouse I mentioned earlier, we make everything from... Uh, rye bread, European style breads, American breads, pastries, and we have a, a wonderful little shop there where we do quite a bit of retail too. And I think I'm forgetting something, but it's not really technically a business per se, but Zingerman's Press, we do all these uh, books and pamphlets here in town, sort of old school. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's so great. I remember I, mean, I had the gelato. So when I came to Ann Arbor. Yeah. And, and yeah. We make that at the creamery. Yeah. Oh. So good. So anyone that's passing through or going through Ann Arbor needs to stop. And we, we actually ship that too. So. Oh, yes. And yes, sir. And I'll link your website below as well. So if someone wants to order. Okay, uh, great. Online, um, I can personally attest to, to the gelato. <laughs> um, what advice would you give a business leader who is looking to take their organization um, to new heights and think about how to best put their purpose and, and people first? Well, I think the business books are written with that in mind. I mean, it's just stuff that I wish I would have known when I started and I'm still learning more all the time, but it's just putting that in writing for people. Uh, I mean, I think the visioning that we talked about without question is super helpful. And then all these other pieces as well. And I, I, I think also, again, from learning a lot about anarchist thinking and getting out of the hierarchical thinking, which is how we're all raised is just that there isn't just one thing. And, you know, it's like, somebody said, well, what's the key thing of having a healthy forest? It, it doesn't even make sense because we know that there's a hundred things, a thousand things that are all planned into, into it. And I think that the, uh, 
the same thing is true for organizations, but at least if you have a vision of where you're going that you're inspired by, then the other things can get worked out on route because you're committed to a future of your own choosing and people around you know what that is and they're much better able to help you and you're much better able to make decisions to go towards it. That's awesome. And how can people come to follow you and your journey and um, the organization? Well, like I said, I mean, our the, the e-news I do is up at zingermanscommunity.com. And then on there, too, I don't know what we have, probably like 30 different e-newses. Uh, Bake, I didn't mention earlier, is part of the Bake House is our baking school for home bakers. And one of the very few upsides of the pandemic is that all of our classes for Bake and for Zing Train are now online, which they weren't before. Uh so people can sign up for any of those newsletters. And then my email is just ari at zingermans.com. And uh, I am more than happy to have people just email directly with questions too. That's awesome. And then eventually they could come visit. Yes. (laughs) One day this will be over after we get vaccinated. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I feel like we could talk about so many other things. Um, And this is just like the the, uh, touch of the iceberg here, but, um, you know, thank you so much uh, for your time. And I, again, will list all the information below in the notes so people will be able to easily find you um, and hopefully have the Zingerman's experience, whether it's there in Ann Arbor or in their own home. Um, okay, that so, sounds great. And we can do another interview down the road too. Yes, absolutely. And I would love to hear more, you know, about your journaling and- um, Yeah. Well, there's a lot. And so that that's a lot in Zingerman's Guide to Good Leading Part 3, which is on managing ourselves. And then also you mentioned that you, uh, I think you said you're an artist. And there's a little pamphlet I did a couple of years ago called The Art of Business, which is about my belief that business and life are very much like art or music or poetry. And that the more we would approach what we do in that vein, uh, the more mindful, intentional, uh, nuanced we would be in what we do every day. Oh, that's amazing. I fully, fully agree. <laughs> you're talking my so language. You're, you're going to have a lot of reading ahead of you. <laughs> yes, so much. 